This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. We began looking at Genesis 19 last week. We looked at the first 13 verses. Today we will finish the chapter. We will begin at verse 14 and read through verse 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place. For the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them out of the city that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven, out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plains, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that he may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night, 
Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we hear in your word today difficult things. We hear of your wrath, of your judgment, and of the many, many great and terrible consequences of sin that come not only in the world to come, but come even in this life and in this world. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive this word, to receive the teaching in it, but even in this darkest of time described in the story of your people, you would point us to the hope of the gospel and to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When last week's message from the first part of Genesis 19, I talked about how our society often seeks to downplay the sinfulness of sin. Our culture has embraced many liberal and libertarian and libertine ideologies and worldviews where people are generally left free to do whatever they please and expect that they should be free from any judgment when they do. I've said before that in our day, probably the best known Bible verse is Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. If we look at what happened last week in the sins of Sodom, Lot's greatest offense against the people of Sodom, the reason for which they wanted to take him and destroy him, was because he called their evil evil. They found fault with him because he dared to judge them, even though they did great wickedness, even though they were burning in their homosexual lust and acting on it. The greatest offense Lot did to them was to judge them, to call their evil evil to call their sin, sin. Now, as we live in a culture that practices and celebrates sins that would have been very much at home in Sodom, we hear the refrain over and over again, don't you judge me. You have no right to judge me. You can take other more subtle forms. You can't legislate morality, even though every law that's written is toward some sort of moral vision. We hear things like, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. But there is only one truth, and it is God's truth. But this is the age in which we live. And just as Sodom before, our age very much does not want to hear about the sinfulness of sin or the evil of evil. And the world certainly does not want to be reminded that there are any consequences for sin or for evil. Anytime there are new laws passed that call evil what God calls evil, there is backlash, there is outcry, even from many professing Christians who say, how can we do that? Why would we do that? 
even though all we're doing is calling evil what God calls evil. There have been recent laws that are against things like homosexuality and transgenderism in some states and some countries. And in many of these laws are even less strict than the laws that God's prescribed. But many Christians think they're wrong. Many think that they're evil. Now, the civil law for Old Testament Israel was for Israel. We're not required or expected to enact it. But the moral law on which all of the other laws are based, binds all men forever, including things like the Seventh Commandment and what it says about sins of a sexual nature. This is why chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession says what it says about the moral law binding all people forever. Now, what we cannot do as we look at laws in the Bible is we cannot say that a penalty that God prescribed or a punishment that he dished out for violation of his law is unjust. Because if we do that, we say that either God is unjust because he prescribed something evil to be done, or we're saying that God had to somehow change. He changed between the Old and New Testaments. Many, though they might not say it explicitly, believe something like this, that Old Testament God was more strict He was more uh, wrathful and judging, but New Testament God is more merciful. Now, I'm not here to talk about law, talk about politics, but we do see in our day that many Christians are quick to deny not only the sinfulness of sin, but the rejection of any concept of sin having consequences, be they the eternal consequences, death and hell, or even temporal consequences, the evils and the troubles that sin produce in this world. But friends, that is not what we see in the Bible. The Bible tells us that sin is real, and that sin has real consequences, and not only spiritual consequences, but consequences in this world and in this life. We confess this in our catechism. All mankind by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. There is both. There's the spiritual and eternal consequences, but there's also the miseries in this life that come because of sin. Now, if we are Christians, we do not have to fear the eternal and spiritual consequences. If we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. We have redemption in Jesus Christ. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus need not fear God's wrath and curse and death and hell. But there there does remain many miseries that are brought by sin as long as we live in this world. And it is with this in mind that we return to Lot in Sodom. Now remember from before that Lot was a believer. Lot was a righteous man. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament made clear for us. Lot was a righteous man, tormented by the sins and the evil that was around him. So Lot had no need to fear God's wrath and curse and hell as it pertained to his eternal spiritual life. But what we do see here in Genesis 19, there are grave and terrible temporal consequences from the sin around him. 
not even his own sin, not sin in which he directly took part, but the sin of the city that he chose to live in, the sin of his people, the sin of the culture around him. And so in the second part of this chapter, having seen the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's decree of judgment for them, we now see the execution of that judgment and the consequences of it. So we will look at the rest of chapter 19 today in three points. First, there is reluctance in verses 14 through 22. God has decreed the judgment that is to come on Sodom, and he has told told Lot and the people with him that they need to leave. But they don't want to. They're going to hesitate. They're going to resist. But then second, we see removal in verses 23 through 29. They will be removed from the city. They who will actually listen, they must leave, and they do. And then third and finally, we see ruin in verses 30 through 38. The struggle and sorrow of Lot does not end with Sodom's destruction. So again, we have resistance, removal, and ruin, or reluctance, removal, and ruin. First, we see reluctance in verses 14 through 22. Now, as we ended with last week, Lot and his family, they were given very clear instructions from these angels who visited them. Lot and everyone with him were told to leave the city because God was going to destroy it. Now, Lot, he does the best he can. He first goes to visit his sons-in-law. Now, we saw in the previous passage that Lot's daughters had not yet married. They had not yet known a man. So... What is going on here is these men are betrothed to marry Lot's daughters. They are engaged. They had essentially entered into a contract of marriage. They just hadn't had the wedding yet. In the ancient world, betrothal was a much more serious matter than an engagement is now. If somebody wants to break off an engagement today, they basically just say it's over and it's over. But in the ancient world, they were for all intents and purposes already married. So Lot goes to his sons-in-law with the news that God was about to destroy the city. How do they respond? They think he's joking. They think, they laugh, they mock, they scoff. And we see here yet another instance, yet another example of something we saw last time. Though Lot was a righteous man of faith, his life and his family... And the way that he has ordered his life do not reflect those priorities. His daughters, they're engaged to men of Sodom who will not heed the word of the Lord. And this is egregious. This is a great sin. Remember from earlier in Genesis that it was the intermarriage between the people of God and the city of man that eventually led to the great wickedness that brought the flood in the days of Noah. At every other point, intermarriage occurs in the Bible between believing and unbelieving people. It produces trouble, produces hardship, produces sorrow. It's why in the New Testament, believers are prohibited from being unequally yoked. So if you are someone here who is someday looking to marry, note well, whatever you think you might be getting from marrying outside the faith, it's not worth it. It's wrong. It's sin. It's disobedience. And Lot and his daughters are about to learn this the hard way. 
Because these men will not leave the city. They will perish with it. They hear the word from the Lord. They think it's a joke. They take it lightly. Commenting on this, John Calvin writes, Lot therefore did not seem to them to mock purposely or have come for the sake of trifling with them, but they deemed his language fabulous, as in a fable, something ridiculous, because where there is no religion and no fear of God, whatever is said concerning the punishment of the wicked vanishes as a vain and illusory thing. And hence we perceive how fatal and evil security is, which so inebriates, yea, fascinates the minds of the wicked, that they no longer think God sits as judge in heaven, and thus they stupidly sleep in sin, till when they are saying peace and safety, they are overwhelmed in sudden ruin. End quote. So Calvin is basically getting at a point I made at the beginning. There's nothing that those who do not fear and those who do not believe God, there is nothing they hate and mock and scoff and ignore more than the prospect of God's judgment. The people of the world, they go about their lives thinking that they're just fine. And a God who judges sin and an only way of salvation being in Jesus Christ, they hear about these things, they laugh. Just like Lot's sons-in-law, they mocked and they scoffed when Lot said that God was going to judge and destroy the city. And in fact, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them and inclines them to hear, they will perish with the wicked. And Christians who yoke themselves to unbelievers, those who reject God's word and scoff at his word, they will only increase their sorrow. But after this failure to persuade his sons-in-law, we see that time passes and morning dawns in verse 15. Now, I doubt there was much sleeping going on in the house that night. But when morning comes, it is again safe to travel. The angels give the command to Lot and to his wife and to his daughters that they need to leave, or else they will be consumed in the punishment of the city. But we see hesitation. We see unwillingness to leave. We see in verse 16 that Lot lingered. Now, to a point, we can kind of understand, at least from a human perspective, why they linger. This is a lot to take in. There were the events of the night before and the declaration that this whole city is about to be punished and destroyed. And then you add to this the loss of the sons-in-law and they're about to lose their property and possessions. They have to leave with only what they can carry. You see things like this today when people are called to evacuate from natural disasters. I went to seminary in Southern California and California is very hot and dry and there's always a great risk of wildfires and they can move very fast and cause massive damage. We were told when we moved there we needed to have a plan. We needed to have provisions set aside, an escape bag basically that we could grab and leave if we only had a few minutes because a fire was coming. Now, thankfully, it never happened. But this is the kind of daunting prospect that Lot was facing. He was about to lose his home, lose his possessions, lose people that he cared about all at once. Though he was a righteous man, again, as the New Testament tells us, though he was a man of faith, 
He was still human, and he was attached to worldly things and worldly cares. But time is up, and it's time to go, and the angels know this. So they physically remove Lot and his family from the city in verse 16. We're told that in doing this, the Lord was merciful to Lot. He would have perished in his waiting and his tarrying and his worldly cares, but the Lord delivered him out. But that doesn't mean the resistance and reluctance are over. Lot gets some very clear instructions in verse 17. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. It's about as clear as it can be made. God intends to destroy all the cities of the plain. He intends to purify and purge them with fire. And he intends to deliver Lot and what's left of his family out of it to safety. Now in this, we see a picture of the deliverance that we all receive in Christ. We are all in this world that is full of sin and full of misery and passing away into the fires of hell and destruction. And on our own, we're not going anywhere. We're not leaving. We have to be supernaturally regenerated. We have to be drawn away from God and into new life. But once God saves us, once God redeems us, we then respond in thanksgiving and gratitude by heeding the word of the Lord. Not that we do so perfectly. And we see even here that Lot struggles to heed the word of the Lord. In fact, in verse 18, Lot tries to negotiate. He doesn't want to go to the mountains. He doesn't think he'll make it there. He doesn't think he'll be safe there. He thinks some evil will overtake him, that he will be killed. Now, he shows in his actions a certain lack of faith. Will not the God who has acted so far to preserve his life continue to do so? But Lot is full of doubt. So he asks for a different option. He asks to flee to another city that is closer but smaller than Sodom. Now, it should be noted that this city, before this negotiation, was purposed for destruction. It would have likely been just as evil and just as deserving of wrath as Sodom and the other cities of the plain. So Lot, even after everything he's seen and everything he's gone through here, he wants to flee to the kind of place he's being removed from. Though Lot is a man of faith, he has become too comfortable in the wicked cities of wicked men that are flirting with God's wrath and destruction. And yet, God mercifully and graciously again grants his request. Lot is permitted to flee to this smaller city, which we find out is Zoar. But there is more trouble to come. And this brings us to our second point. After reluctance, we come to removal in verses 23 through 29. So Lot and his family go to Zoar. Now we see that the sun had risen by the time they do it. It's still morning, but later. And once Lot and his family entered Zoar, the promised judgment rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. The very fires of hell itself. And the cities are destroyed, and everything in them, and everything around them. They are removed from the face of the earth. Now we hear accounts of this kind of destruction in the Bible. 
And it can often raise these questions in our mind about God's justice. Did he really need to destroy the cities? Did he really need to kill everyone there? Isn't that wrong? But when we catch ourselves thinking this way, it brings us to a problem I mentioned before. It shows how little perspective we have. God is perfectly just. God cannot be unjust. For if he were, he would not be good. And if he were not good, he would not be God. If our thoughts and our questions cause us to think that God is unjust, the problem is not God, the problem is us. The truth is that Sodom's judgment was well-deserved particularly and acutely because of their particular sins, but also in the recognition that all of mankind are fallen and sinful and deserving of God's judgment. We all deserve fire and brimstone. It is only for the grace of God that we do not receive it in this life or in the life to come. Again, we don't like to consider the sinfulness of sin, or its consequences and punishments. But we have to consider them. Because without recognition of our sin, we cannot understand fully the necessity and glory of our salvation. Without understanding the law and what transgression of it does and what transgression of it requires, we cannot properly understand the gospel. Without the reality of eternal death, we do not understand the great gift of God of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, when Lot and his family were told to flee, they were told not to look back. They were to heed the word of the Lord and go where it led without doubt and hesitation. But in verse 26, we see the piling on of tragedy. Lot's wife looks back, and for this, she is turned into a pillar of salt. She died. She was destroyed. And again, we may ask, well, is this fair? Is this just? All she did was turn and look. Yes, it is fair and it is right and it is just because she did not heed the word of the Lord. Her heart was not with her God. Her heart was in Sodom. The sin was not merely the looking. Abraham is about to look down at Sodom, and he'll be fine. But when Lot's wife looks back, what she's showing is that her cares were in Sodom. Though she had the opportunity that so few did to escape from Sodom with her life, her loyalty was there such that she could not help but long for the city. She could not help but look back, and though she went for a while along with the city of God, she ended up perishing with the city she loved. But this also again shows us that Lot has reaped from what he has sown. Even his wife, even the closest of human relations he could have, did not fear the Lord, did not heed the word of the Lord. First his sons-in-law and now his wife, proving by their actions that their loyalties are elsewhere and not to God. We see in verses 27 through 29 an interlude about Abraham. We see that Abraham goes out to the place where he had spoken with God the day before. 
realize that all of the events of chapters 18 and 19 have come to pass in just one day. So Abraham dwelt up on the edge of the mountains and he looks down on the plain of Sodom and he sees it burning. He sees the smoke. This might be a familiar kind of picture to us. We've had recently all the smoke drifting in from the wildfires in Canada. And sometimes it gets so bad that it blots out the sky, it turns the sun red. It's a very eerie picture. Now, we don't want to exegete providence, and we don't want to start ascribing God's judgment to particular natural disasters, because we don't know that. But anytime we see any great calamity or great disaster, it should cause us to remember our mortality. It should remind us to remember the curse of sin and its consequences should remind us of the reality of death, and it should remind us of the coming of God's judgment. You can imagine a picture like that as Abraham looks towards Sodom and he sees the smoke rising up from it. He knows that God has done what God purposed to do. The ten righteous souls that he pleaded for were not there. In fact, as of now, the best count we can come up with is three, Lot and his daughters. They're the only ones left, and even there, we see that that is in doubt. But we also see in verse 29 a comment that may strike us as a bit odd. When God destroyed Sodom, he remembered Abraham and saved Lot. Though Abraham and Lot had separated some years prior, Abraham never stopped caring for his nephew. He had intervened previously when Sodom was captured by the kings of the north. He had, for Lot's sake, pled with God to spare Sodom if ten righteous could be found there. So Sodom had been destroyed, but God was not indifferent to Abraham's pleas. Abraham was the man with whom God's covenant blessings and promises rested. And though Abraham was not perfect, in fact, in the very next chapter, We'll see more of Abraham's sin. God cares for Abraham and even orders providence for the good of his people. But what happens to Lot and his daughters? Well, this brings us to our final point. After reluctance and removal, we come to ruin in verses 30 through 38. Though Lot did take the compromise option and went to Zoar, we find out he doesn't stay there long. He's afraid to dwell there, so he takes his daughters and goes to the mountains. He ends up where he initially had been asked to go. Perhaps he realized that he should not stay in a place like Sodom, a place that had previously been condemned under the wrath of God. Perhaps he thinks something similar is going to happen there. And so he goes to the mountains, and he and his daughters dwell in a cave. Now, one could understand to a point, after all that he has been through, why Lot would be afraid and why he'd go to the mountains. But just because he no longer dwells in the plain, it doesn't mean he has to live alone. He could have, for instance, returned to someone else in the mountains who was Abraham. It's clear that Abraham still loved and cared for Lot, likely would have welcomed him back even as he had lost everything. Lot could have returned to the people of God where they could be found. It was too late to stop the loss and calamity and destruction in Sodom, but at least he could have rebuilt what was left of his life. 
But it seems that Lot is afraid and he just wants to hide and die. And his daughters, who remember they were pledged to be married, realized that in their isolation, there would be no opportunity for them to marry. And so they concoct an evil scheme. They concoct a scheme, according to their words, to deal with what is the custom of all the earth. They're not thinking about the things of God. They're thinking about earthly pragmatism. In that way, they seem to still carry Sodom with them. Their solution is not to try to persuade their father or somehow acquire husbands legitimately or accept as God's providence their lack of husbands. Instead, they get their father drunk and lie with him. They commit the sin of incest. They do something evil to try to achieve ends, which they think will justify the means. And both of them conceive and have children. And one is Moab and one is Ben-Ami, and they will be the fathers of the Moabites and Ammonites. Now, for the most part, the Moabites and the Ammonites will be enemies of Israel. They will be enemies of God's people. There are exceptions. For instance, Ruth is someone in the Bible who's a Moabite who becomes a part of the people of God. But in general, Lot's descendants, though Lot himself was a righteous and believing man, Lot's descendants are going to dwell outside of the city of God. Though Lot was a man of faith, he suffered the greatest of losses for not living a life consistent with his faith. Though he was accounted as righteous, the pull of the world was great upon him. God had blessed him with so much. He had possessions and wealth to even rival Abraham at the time that they separated. But his heart was also pulled by worldly pragmatism. He surrounded himself with the things and the people of the world. He separated from Abraham and went to the plain, which was a land of material prosperity, but spiritual and moral poverty. His wife loved the city more than him. He pledged his daughters to men who would not heed the word of the Lord. And his daughters showed no faith or confidence in God's word and God's promises. Lot was too comfortable among the world and its evil and it ruined him. It cost him everyone and everything he had. It even cost him the future of his family. His descendants, again, they live outside of the knowledge of the Lord. And Lot is a warning to all of us. We can be Christians. We can be true Christians. We can have true faith and yet be too at home, too comfortable in the world, such that we become too tolerant to the wickedness around us. We become entangled with people who hate our God and hate his word and seek to take and destroy what is his. We see so much of that in the world today. We see Christians and we even see churches trying to get as close to sin and as close to the world as they can, thinking this is how we'll grow. This is how we'll thrive. This is how we get to be winsome and missional and reach the culture and the world around us. This is how we get to live under grace. Let us not be ensnared in Sodom. We are in the world we cannot leave this world until God calls us to leave this world. 
But if we are in the world as Christians, we must be salt and light. We must press back against the world and its sin and darkness with the truth of the law and the hope of the gospel. Because we have received this gospel by grace and without it, all stand to meet the same fate as Sodom, fire and brimstone, death and condemnation. May we order our lives not according to worldly pragmatism, not our own earthly desires, but what God wants, what God desires, what God commands. May we order our lives so that we can love and worship and serve our God faithfully, not just ourselves, but our children and all of those who would be among us. Because though we often seek to avoid this reality, judgment is coming and it is certain. We may not see it in our lives. We hopefully aren't going to be visited one day and told to run for our lives because fire and brimstone is coming. But all of us are going to die someday. There is a coming day of the Lord, a great and terrible day, where the evil of this world is finally filled up and brought to an end. And Christ will return He will return and take his sheep, those who belong to him, into eternal life and rest. Those who are washed in his blood, those who repent of their sins and believe in him, have nothing to fear at the judgments. But those who reject him, those who would rather have their sins and their own worldly lives and worldly ways apart from God, they will receive the judgment of Sodom and worse eternal death and condemnation. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two outcomes. Choose this day who you will serve. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus, abide in Jesus, and live. Let us pray. Father, we have seen in this word difficult things. We have seen the reality of your wrath. We have seen the evil of sin and what it does, even even to a man who belonged to you, to his family, to those around him. We recognize in it the dangers of sin, the sinfulness of sin, the consequences of sin, and it is a sobering and humbling reality. I pray that we would... Seek to flee from sin wherever it presents, that we would not be too comfortable in the world and too close to your coming judgment, that we would be faithful to you, we would be salt and light, that we would bear witness to your word, even if it's costly, even if the world hates and rejects it. I pray most of all that all here gathered would know your gospel, would believe in your son Jesus Christ, would receive his righteousness as their own righteousness and no longer trust in themselves. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.